Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast. I'm Sarah Hill, Associate Editor. Today's program is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Today, I'd like to introduce Bill Bussing, a grower from Axtell, Kansas. Bill will be giving us a sneak peek of his upcoming presentation at the 2021 National Cover Crop Summit. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Thank you, Sarah. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, give us a basic overview of your farm uh, to get us started. I'm in my 40s. My wife and I um, own and operate BS Farms Incorporated. Uh, My wife works I'm going to say maybe 20 or 40 hours a month off the farm. Otherwise, we both farm full time. And we do have a young man in his early 20s helps us out part time also. We um, farm about 600 acres. um, And I mean farm as in that's row crop, pasture and everything together. Um, We have about a 50 head cow calf operation, some ewes. Um, We do row crop and then we do... um, corn finish, some cattle, along with grass finishing, some cattle, and some things like that. I've been farming for most, well, I grew up on a farm, so I've been involved in farming most of my life. I did work in town until about eight or nine years ago, and then farmed on the side. And then um, when I began getting more into the cover crops and stuff like that, and when I started corn finishing some cattle, I was able to quit my town job. And I I say my my town job, job now is corn finishing cattle. And that's also my, my, um, fertilizer manufacturing company. It's, um, manure out of the animals is my fertilizers. <laughs> Great. So, um, in your, your row crop portion of the operation, what crops do you grow and, and which cover crops do you implement as well? Lately, I've been growing mostly corn and cereal rye and oats. I do use some soybeans. My rotation's I would say don't necessarily aren't rotations, just the fact in general. I've evolved from a corn, I mean, most people around me are corn soybean farmers and used to have some wheat years ago. And we always kind of kept wheat in the rotation, you know, just to have some, you know, for instance, oats and turnips and radishes early on as a cover crop afterwards. But um, we did have a little bit of alfalfa we put up for hay. I pretty much eliminated the haying in my program. I do do a little bit of silage once in a while which i try and keep away from that if i can but um mainly now it's corn and cereal rye and that's kind of my rotation i've had the last five or six years um mainly for feed and something i can utilize or sell on the farm i don't export very many um commodities anymore i mostly export beef or, or, or sheep or lamb or something like that. That's what I export. I don't, I mean, I'm a, I'm a net importer, not a net exporter. And so that's part of the reason I think cover crops and some of the things fit on my farm and the, some of the cover crops, okay. I, 
are like sorghum sedan or forage sorghums, but these are all in mixes. They're not necessarily any one, you know, these are species that are all in a mix. Um, turnips and radishes and different types of turnips are I mean, different types of radishes, mustard, you know, um, flax, buckwheat, um, sun hemp, cow peas, mung beans, um, a Laredo forage soybean is one I really like, oats, cereal rye. I'm sure I'm um, leaving a lot of things out yet. You know, I do use some clovers in my pasture, clovers and alfalfa and some bird's foot tree foil and some of that kind of things. And with my pastures um, that reseed themselves, you know, to kind of diversify the pasture that I have also. Okay. So um, with the, the livestock side of the operation, um, you mentioned you have a cow-calf operation. Um, what breed of cattle do you raise? And then also, uh, what breed of sheep do you raise? On the cow-calf side, I'm primarily um, red Angus and black Angus. I like the red Angus a little bit better because of the heat, a few things like that. But um, that's the primarily the cow-calf side. On, you know, on my feeding operation, I buy anything from the sale barn. And, and that works for that, but that's not for the grass fed side of things. My cow calf goes for the grass fed and the sheep, as far as they are, they are a kind of a three or four way mix or crossed, if you will, they're hair sheep, um, they're Katahdin or St. Croix, some of them, Dorper and Romanoff mix or crosses. The Rams are pretty much a, a third, a third and a third or half Romanoff and then a quarter Dorper and a quarter Katahdin, but the ewes are kind of a mix of that because they were not all that exact mix when I started. Okay. Um, so talk a little bit about what motivated you to start using cover crops and how you transitioned into using covers. Um, I actually started using cover crops when my, when I was a kid, dad on the set aside acres, dad would plant clover on the set aside acres being white you know, biannual clover, white, you know, sweet clover or yellow sweet clover or red clover. So I've actually been using, you know, uh, some form of them for a long time. Um, Dad used a lot of oats. And then early on, we used um, radishes and turnips with them. And that was probably 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and so when I started into it, I had a few cattle and just a little bit of farm ground. So it's kind of natural just to plant something out there for feed. I really wasn't thinking of it as a cover crop you know, in the sense I do today, but that's kind of how we got started. Okay. Um, talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you encountered along the way as you were starting your cover crop journey. Oh, there's always fun challenges and trials. Um, what works one year doesn't work the next year. So if you think you got something figured out, it, it doesn't always work. When I first started cover crops back in the late 90s, um, the first couple of years we planted oats in the spring and then hate it and then planted soybeans afterwards. And the first year I thought I got about a 10 or a 15 bushel yield bump from doing that. Man, this is a kick a ticket. I got hay or, you know, oats, hay, you know, and then I got a great, um, stand of soybeans and a great harvest on my soybeans. This is awesome. Well, the second year I did the exact same thing and it cost me about 15 or 20 bushel an acre because I hate it versus the ones that didn't. You know, and it, so it took us a few years to realize that I try and leave as much out on the soil or out in the fields as I can. And by not haying that, and then we kind of transitioned to cereal rye. But by not haying that, especially on the upland farms, that um, it actually, our beans do better. You know, we, we need to leave that 
soil armor or cover out there and it actually helps us in the drier months of the summer. So every year is different. And that's one thing I've learned. You know, one year you may have oodles of cover out there and the next year you may not have as much, but anything is better than nothing. Definitely. So what are your goals for using cover crops in your operation? Um, it started out for soil health and animal feed were probably the two biggest things. I've learned that because I have a livestock background and dad had background in cattle when I grew up, it was hard not to want to take everything out there in the field right away and use it for feed, you know, haying it or grazing it real short or whatever. So it's hard not to, to want to do that. And so it's hard for me to take that goal of I wanted that cattle feed and not overutilize that in it. And so I needed to leave more residue, you know, the water running off our farms, which I, ideally I don't want any runoff, but there is still some that does. You want it as clean as possible. You know, you don't, we don't like having ditches in the farms and whatever. And, and the cover crops have definitely helped minimize them and um, do some of that. You know, it, it, I have more diversity of animals, um, birds, you know, you know, I always have neighbors or people that want to come hunt my farms for pheasant and quail for the fact that we still have some of them around here. Most of them are gone in the area and, you know, so some of those things are not really goals, but it's observations you make. And so my goals keep expanding. Every, it seems like every answer I get, I have two more questions for that answer. So it's not always a good thing, but, but it makes it fun. Great. So talk a little bit about how you go about seeding cover crops and, and when you seed them, um, that timing. We drill primarily all of our cover crops. We have aerial seeded some. Um, that's very hit and miss here. Um, if you had irrigation, it may be a, a better option. Um, we have never got a very good stand on aerial seeding, so we tend to like to drill them. And um, I drill ideally as soon as I can after harvest. You know, ideally that's a day or less um, practical. It's sometimes a week or two, depending on rains. You know, sometimes you can get harvest in right before a rain, but you can't get it drilled until a week or two later because it's too wet to drill. Talk a little bit about where you source your cover crop seed from. Where, where do you buy it from? Who's your supplier? Um, I primarily buy most of it from Green Cover Seed. Um, I actually became a dealer myself 15 years ago, probably, because nobody around me um, had anything that I, I could get oats from the local co-ops and stuff like that. And once in a while, you could find a turnips. Radishes weren't even used yet then around here. And it was more of a headache for them to mess with it. So I actually become a small dealer. But I get, I source most of it from green cover seed. I do buy a little bit from star seed yet. Um, but that's primarily the places I get it. I do buy a little bit here and there other than that. But those are primarily the places I get it. And, and I really like green cover seeds. Got a um, tool on their webpage where you can actually create your own mixes. And, and they can actually help you if you want it. And that's a very useful thing. I follow that a little bit, um, but it's very useful for people that have never have any experience with cover crops and trying to figure something out for the first time. Definitely. So um, we've kind of talked about which cover crop species you use and what your goals are. Let's kind of connect those two things and talk about how you select cover crop species with the intention of meeting those goals. How, which, which ones do what for you? Well, part of my, you know, if, if, it's, if it's for livestock feed, 
um, I, I try and plant things that'll be utilized when I'm going to have livestock in the field. If that's in the summertime or in the, for well, let's just start in the springtime, for instance, you know, maybe it'll be, I planted the cereal rye or spring tr- or winter trinicale or something like that in the fall, you know, and so I select that. My goal is to graze it in the wind through the winter um, and with corn stalks or something like that. Or if I'm going to graze something in the springtime, sometimes I'll plant hairy vetch and a clover, crimson clover or something like that. And with winter trinicale, and I'll graze my sheep typically on that in the spring. And so I kind of try and, and mix those things together. Um, I used to put more legumes in it, but I'm having a harder time keeping residue on the surface of my soil. Early on, I had more residue than I cared for, and actually the livestock helped with that and helped manage that. But now it seems like my soil biology is turning things more, and so I try and keep less legumes in it. You know, some of that's you learn by observation with if, you know, if your cover crops are growing good without any fertility out there, you know, you can start cutting back on, for instance, legumes and stuff like that, or, you know, you don't want too many brassicas out there. Um, so I, I plant those types of things. My summer mixes, you know, they'll have different things in them, you know, sorghum sedans or forward sorghum, the timing of, you know, I pick them out. Um, I used to try and go just one or the other and meet an exact window. Well, I've learned when I'm grazing, my window may be 90 days or 120 days or even, you know, four months long, you know. And so I try and pick things that will be good in that window the whole way through. Not everything will be perfect at the beginning and not everything will be perfect at the end. But if you have a blend out there, it, it kind of equals out, out together. I don't know if that's quite the right way to describe it, but they complement things each other. You know, something that winter kills early, maybe better forage early but it'll still stockpile through the winter better, you know, like a forage sorghum stockpiles through the winter better than a forage or sorghum sedan. And so I, I use a blend of them sometimes where the, you know, the early in the fall, if I maybe going to get a little bit of regrowth on the field, the sorghum sedan will regrow better than the forage sorghum. But late in the winter, the forage sorghum will have better quality in the leaves and stuff yet than the sorghum sedan, you know, or the mm-hmm. brassicas will last longer than the for instance, the others, but I do try and leave some things that the livestock won't eat. You know, I do like buckwheat in a lot of my mixes. Livestock use, use, utilize them a little bit, but they don't eat them. But um, I do try and put in some things. Sun hemp, they'll eat the leaves, but they'll eat the stem. I try and leave some things out there the livestock won't eat to help keep the soil covered. We'll be right back to the podcast, but first I want to thank our sponsor, with a tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at getterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. And now back to the podcast. So you mentioned that uh, having the the cattle and sheep are kind of your fertilizer manufacturer. Um, Do you apply any of that manure to either your cash crops or cover crops? I do. um if I got to feed livestock for like, for instance, here a while back, we had real cold snap with some snow and ice on the ground. If I feed hay or something out there that I purchased, I'll, I'll address 
I want to say poor spots in the field or fields, you know, spots in the field that maybe he's got just a touch of a ditch. I'll put a little hay there and the cattle will kind of work that hay in if they waste any. It'll kind of heal those spots. When I finish my, my corn fed beef, I do collect the manure. It's in a monoslope shed and I do, it's a bed pack. And so I have quite a bit of uh, manure out of that. And so I do apply that to the fields. Um, typically, uh, it might be, you know, I'll, I'll spread some of my cereal rye fields after I harvest them or moats fields after I harvest them in the summertime. I'll clean out the bed pack and shed and spread it on those fields. Um, or I'll address problem areas in the field, you know, I'll put it on those areas. Or I'll do it in the fall after we cut my earlage, and, um, which is the, there again is the corn. All you're taking is the cob, the husk, and the um, corn off the, off the field. And I'll, you know, maybe apply it some then. So I do use that at addressing it. It does not everything gets manure out of that every year. But, you know, anytime you have livestock in the field grazing the cover crops, they leave a fair amount of manure back behind. If you can, you know, not have to mechanically harvest or remove anything and let the livestock do it, they leave a fair amount of it out there. Talk about your rotational grazing program and how many acres is each paddock? It's kind of rotational grazing and I call it that, but um, there's other terminologies for it too. My each paddock varies from probably a half an acre to maybe five or six acres. It sometimes depends on how often I move them. If I move them daily, it's going to be a lot smaller. And one thing about a lot of my farms, they have pretty good perimeter fence. And a lot of times they might have some smooth one wire electric fence. Sometimes they're high tensile, sometimes they're not in there other places. But then I use a lot of poly wire to break up those um, farms or fields into smaller sections yet. And so every paddock varies, um, depends on how many animals are in the group. You know, if you have 200 and some ewes with 400 baby lambs, and then you have 20 head of cattle in there, that's, that's a decent size flirt, you know, and you move them into a bigger paddock. And I don't like moving the sheep with the lambs every day. So it might be three days. And so they might be five acres or seven acres at a time for a couple of days grazing, and then I'll move them. But if I have my 50 cow calf pair, sometimes it's less than an acre in a day, depending on how much feed's out there and how much I'm wanting them to graze. I try not to take 50% or more, but there are times of the year where I do, you know, I try and rotate not only the animals in different um, sequences, but also try and remove more and less forage different times through the field on my perennial grasses and stuff. Just for the fact that um, it, it does a different stimulation to the plants and my annuals, so your, your cover crops and stuff like that. I, a lot of times just take, whatever I need, you know, your higher end animals, I'm going to say like your grass fed beef and, and, uh, and stuff like that. You want them to take less because they'll perform better. Or if you want something that you don't care if it gains two pounds a day, they can maybe take a little bit more of the plant. They're still not going to take 50% on a cover crop because I, I, they just don't very quickly, but they may look like it. But if you actually wait it out, they don't, you know, then, then you can make them graze it harder. And so this paddock size is very a lot because of that. So you mentioned um, weight gain and, and how that can be influenced by cover crops and, and the grazing. What benefits have you seen or what is your average um, weight gain per day uh, for cattle and, and sheep that you, you're grazing on covers? I, I give that one example. It's about two and three quarters pounds a day on some four to 800 pounders in my presentation. 
I've weighed a few cattle other than that, but a, a lot of times I don't weigh them. Um, and that weight gain depends on the time of the year and the quality of the cover crop you're grazing and the timing of your grazing of that cover crop. Um, you know, I've had words, they've only gained a pound a day, you know, but those are animals that I'm buying from a sale barn that are typically balling off of mama and um, are considered high stress, you know, four or 500 pound calves, high stress, but I put them out on the cover crops and their health and condition, they lose some of that baby fat. So they don't gain a lot of weight, but their health is tremendous out there and they look phenomenal when they come off. And then when I go to feed them later, they explode. And so it, it's kind of a loaded question, you know, in your grass fed cattle, you know, you want three pounds a day or something if you can get it. And sometimes I think I get it, but it, it varies a lot. You know, the, the rain or lack of rain or the heat, you know, that all, all plays a big role in it. Sure. So you mentioned um, animal health. What improvements have you seen in animal health that you can directly correlate to grazing and, and grazing on cover crops specifically? Grazing cover crops, um, for me, buying those sale barn cattle, you know, different days, you know, different sale barns, you know, different, you know, groups of cattle at one time. You commingle them together, and that's just a recipe for troubles. And, and that's the way the farm, you know, the purchasing cattle at those type of places is. But, um, you know, when I used to 10 years ago or even five years ago, try and start them in a feedlot, or I shouldn't say a feedlot, but a lot, and you try and baby them as much as you can. And you buy 400-pound calves with those different backgrounds in the fall when the weather's changing 50 degrees in a day sometimes and stuff. You know, I would have 3% death loss or more. And I buy three or 100 head or so of them every fall. Well, that's nine or 10 a year I was losing. When I started put, but weaning them, bringing them home, working them, you know, basically the same program I was doing, but started after three days, I would kick them out on cover crops and then rotate and move them through cover crops slowly, you know, let them kind of fend for themselves out there in the cover crops and stuff. I'm like, like this year, I haven't lost any. You know, some years I lose one or two, you know, and I treat very few, you know, so the animal health is much, much better. But I also think that is attributed to years of cover crops. I don't necessarily know that that would happen. I think it would definitely benefit early on in cover crops, but I don't necessarily know you would get all the benefits in the first year. Sure. So kind of on the other side of that coin, what benefits have you seen from a soil health perspective um, from grazing? livestock on the cover crops? I see a lot more earthworm activity. Um, I've pulled some Haney tests and the timing of the year makes a big difference on that. But my, you know, I've, this past year I pulled a soil test on some different acres um, that were corn trying to, you know, do some fertilizer recommendations and things like that. And, um, and I actually got permission to pull one off of a neighbor's field and I would consider them a very good farmer, but they don't use um, livestock on the farm and they use cover crops maybe at once every, you know, like maybe cereal rye only after corn, but they, they're really not a lot of other cover crops on that field. And by having the livestock, my soil health score was right across the road from my farm was about double of what their farm was. And I think the actual yields on their corns and stuff, corn and beans, probably as good as mine but their soil health isn't. But what I'm finding with my soil health is I'm 
I can start removing some of the nitrogen and except for manure, I don't apply any, you know, phosphorus or potash or anything like that anymore. And um, I'm able to now I'm, I'm starting to try and do some trials and stuff with reducing nitrogen because of my soil health, the score is higher and that's allowing me to have, you know, more money in the bank, I call it, you know, to do some of those things. Okay. So what would be your advice to other growers who are maybe just getting started growing cover crops? Get cattle on them. If you don't have the cattle, you know, one of my things is um, find a young man or, or maybe it's your own family or maybe it's a somebody else, a, a neighboring young farmer, or maybe even a kid in town that has interest in farming that don't have a way in. You know, cover crops are a way to to, there are time consuming and they are, they are, they can be a challenge, but it's a rewarding challenge. So if you're getting started, you're going to have some trials, but, but it's a good way to get another person on a farm. I mean, I couldn't farm full time if I didn't utilize cover crops with grazing, but it's a good, you know, income, I guess, for us. And it also benefits the soil and, and but not everything is a success and everything you do, there's trials in it and there's a learning curve, you know? And so if you can find a mentor to help you, you know, with some of that, you know, everything you do is, isn't necessarily going to be the same, but if somebody can help you, you know, give you some trials or give you some ideas of things to do, you know, and then, and then get livestock on those cover crops. Like I said, if it's you yourself or somebody else, but get livestock out there. What would you say in, in your years of using cover crops, what are the top three lessons that you have learned from raising cover crops and, and also grazing covers? There's going to be trials, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and, and I remember the trials more. There are definitely benefits to it. Um, but trials, you know, and the successes are, are some of the lessons you learn. I mean, some, some years you're like, wow, this, this couldn't be any better. I, I couldn't have done it. And then the next year you have a hard time getting it up or say the next year, there may be a year, one out of 10, where you have a hard time getting it up, you know, you know, to grow because it's dry, you know, but that being said is even if you have a poor stand or something trying to grow, that still may be better. You know, if you, if you take a step back and look at the overall picture, not only your farm, but the area in general, you know, maybe it's still better than what's going on around you, you know, very good. Well, um, talk a little bit about what are your future plans? Um, what do you, are, is there anything that you're looking to change for this coming growing year or down the road? Yeah. Um, as far as a cover crop, you know, we, last year we started um, interceding in the corn a little bit because we're losing residue too fast and some of that. So, you know, we're starting to maybe look at interceding in the corn a little bit. I want to try, my brother's been trying or trying or using Milo and then have a companion crop with that. And so um, I'm going to actually try that this year for the first time. We're also um, looking at planting into some hairy vetch, trinicale and crimson clover and trying not any for nitrogen fertilization. And there is, of course, there has, you don't use NP and K or phosphorus and potash anymore um but so trying a field of corn you know 15 acre field of corn with no fertility out there this year at all um and utilizing the cover crops for that the second part to that is i do think there's potential for direct marketing if it, it a your cover crop as a feed 
um, for somebody's livestock, you know, if there's nutritional or health, you know, if you can grow a, a healthier, more nutrient dense cover crop, I think that translates into a more nutrient dense feed for an animal, which I think would make a more nutrient dense animal, you know, so I do think direct marketing, there is some potential in there. That's a whole nother ball game and a lot of different things to do, but I think there's definitely some potential in that, you know, utilizing some of the things you're doing as maybe a way to, I don't know if sell is the right word, but sell your, your farm and your ideas to the public that are wanting to utilize those things. You know, you know, if they're buying beef or pork or lamb from you, you know, if you're raised on these cover crops and whatever that are more nutrient dense, that may be a, a way to, um, and I want, I've started doing some of that, but I would like to get into that more. Sounds good. Well, Bill, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for joining us on the Cover Crop Strategies podcast. Once again, I want to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. For those of you listening, if you're interested in registering for this free virtual event, visit covercropsummit.com. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at covercropstrategies.com.